Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and I'm excited to bring you today's show with Brian Gear, who's one of the co-founders of CrossCut, one of LA's earliest seed stage firms. There's so many fascinating parts of the CrossCut journey, but for me in particular, it was them starting the firm during the Great Recession and in a market that was both very early and certainly not well understood by LPs. We also covered Brian's own personal journey in embracing mental wellness as both a core personal driver, but also one that now guides the CrossCut culture. Let's get into the episode now to hear both the full CrossCut journey and also what it takes to build a great non-Silicon Valley based firm. This week's episode is brought to you by Adura Advisors, who I've worked with closely for over a decade and is home to hundreds of private equity and venture fund managers. As someone that's personally very discriminated when it comes to service quality, I found Adura to be a firm that pairs best of breed service with the type of technology demanded by today's fund managers and LPs. Through their internally developed software platform, FundPanel.io, fund managers and LPs can easily manage reporting, capital calls, and performance tracking. Regardless of whether you're an emerging manager just starting out, or you're a seasoned firm looking to supplement an internal team, Adura's back office solution rises to the challenges supporting your firm's specific needs. Listeners of Venture Unlocked receive the first quarter of management company services free with promo code UNLOCKED. To redeem, email dev at aduraadvisors.com. That's D-E-V at A-D-U-R-O-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot com. Brian, so good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the invitation. Well, I always have fun talking to you, and there's a lot we're going to cover about LA and, and the beginnings of CrossCut. But let's start off with your journey into venture. How did that start? I was fortunate enough to, as I say, stumble into Silicon Valley in 1995 when I finished undergrad. And so I caught the tech bug then, spent four years working, and then went back to get my MBA. And when I finished, it was 2001 and the bubble had burst. And I think the only conclusion I had made about what I wanted to be when I grew up was this sort of interest in venture. And it was mostly because the work I had done before business school was um, primarily strategy consulting work. I was writing business plans go-to-market strategies, pricing studies for a bunch of high-flying kind of first bubble tech companies. Um, And the firm I was at, it was called RB Weber. They had a kind of this client base where a decent amount of our compensation ended up coming in the form of equity with these early stage companies. And so I watched the partners at RB Weber make a lot of money off of the value of those bubble stocks but, and loved the idea of working with a lot of companies, but also having financial upside from, from the success of those endeavors. And so that's what led to my interest in venture. Um, and I was just lucky, I guess, when I made the lifestyle decision to move back to LA in 2001 with my then-to-be wife, um, I expressed an interest to my professor at Stanford in getting into venture. He laughed at me. He said, that's an oxymoron, um, but then introduced me to Rick Smith who is now still my partner of 20 plus years. Going back a little bit, uh, you, Rick and Brett started CrossCut in 2008. This was early, early days of LA Venture, early days of small funds being viable. What did you see at the time that got you really excited and and launching a firm, which I think the first fund was $6 million? Rick and I were at a firm here in LA that was focused on enterprise IT. And Brett 
was busy um, scaling Intermix Media, the parent company of MySpace, and getting into his M&A situations with uh, News Corp. And what we saw was a couple things. Um, first, we weren't able to pursue the types of deals that Ellie was producing in the, call it 2004, 2005, 2006 timeframe. They weren't enterprise IT oriented. So Rick and I had deals like Jamdat and MySpace and you know the, the other successes of LA, Lower My Bills, Price Grabber, Shopzilla. Um, none of those deals were a fit for our firm. And so we saw that ecosystem developing. We saw those successes and knew that the proverbial flywheel was going to start to spin. But what we also saw that sort of set our strategy and mindset was ventures best done locally. So we were enterprise IT. We were chasing deals in Silicon Valley and Colorado and Texas. And I couldn't help feeling that I was, you know, the 50th firm to see something if I was up on a trip in, in Palo Alto. And I was like, if you're not at a tier one fund and you don't have that brand and reputation that gets you the best opportunities, you, you're at a disadvantage. And we felt that way. And so the genesis of Crosscut was this ecosystem needs to be catalyzed with capital. And we're in a decent position to, to step in with our venture experience and with Brett's position as the iconic kind of first success of LA to start that fund. Um, the thinking was no greater than that. It was sort of like, we like small fund strategies because we think that's where returns can get generated. And if you build brand and reputation as company builders in a local geo, you should be able to put decent portfolios together and have them scale and have some good returns. I think this is particularly topical right now, given the rise of areas outside of Silicon Valley and even beyond that, the uh, coast, the U.S. One thing I was wondering are the ingredients that are necessary to really create long-term, thriving entrepreneurial hubs. And going back to your time when you first started CrossCut, were there any markers that you saw or things that led you to believe that L.A. was going to be this burgeoning entrepreneurial ecosystem that could sustain local investment activity the way it has? The most important contributor to that conviction for us was repeat entrepreneurs. It didn't really matter what category they had built businesses in. It was the entrepreneurial mindset and the framework of how to scale and how to build success. And so it was guys like Cameron Pors and Johnny and Matt Coffin and um, Gil and Aton. They were all the foundation of sort of seeing that, that capability for an ecosystem to develop. Beyond that, you know, it wasn't so much about categories or thesis. It was more about the diversity of talent in LA that we saw um, and the rise of storytelling and the ability to tell stories. I think that became a much more important part of any company, including enterprise SaaS. The ability to articulate a vision of why this pain exists in the market and how uh, a tech solution can solve it. That pulls from the media side of LA. You know, obviously, we don't do a lot of media investing, but I think it's been an important part of the DNA of LA. And we saw those aspects starting to pop, especially around the first generation e-com businesses like a Shoe Dazzle or an Ipsy, Black Tux. You know, there's, it's very much um, storytelling about the brand identity. We saw that and we felt those were some sustainable 
components that we could grab hold of and 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 build a portfolio around. So when you raised Fund Two, I think Fund Two was 2012 at 15 million, which gave you 21 million under management across three partners, which of course is atypical from a lot of capacities. Was the raise in 2015, uh, 2012 rather, at 15 million, a function of LP still not understanding the potential of LA? Or did you intentionally say, we don't want to grow that fast and 15 seems like a rational number to deploy into companies given where LA's or LA was at the time? I wish those were the components of the story. That would sound so clean. Somewhere. I mean, um, let, let's be clear. The $5 million fund was supposed to be a $50 million fund. And we were raising that fund as we um, headed into the Lehman implosion and the global financial crisis. So none of this was um, planned. It was all sort of where we ended up to be honest, right? And so if you go back, like Brett was scaling his second tech company, commuting to Kansas City. Uh, I was forced to go back into an operating role. I didn't have any savings to lean on. I had gotten my wife pregnant with our third kid. I told her, go ahead and buy that house in the Palisades. I'll have a $50 million fund by year end. Best laid plans. um, None of it worked, obviously. And we were just in this situation where, and I think this is a, a, a kind of core binding dynamic of our partnership, the three of us had to take a long, hard look in the mirror of like, do we believe? Do we believe? Um, I wish we had a plan B, but we didn't. You know, I didn't have a backup plan. So the framework was, well, yeah, we believe. We believe that the people that gave us money believe in this vision of a Southern California catalyzer of, of good stuff across the ecosystem. Let's keep going. And we just managed to find ways to make it work. So to answer your question, um, the second fund of 15, there wasn't a lot of institutional interest in LA in 2011, 2012. At that point, Mark Suster had shown up and started to build his soapbox and you know create attraction from LP money. But nobody was willing to put real money behind the three of us when two of us were in operating roles full time. And, you know, in the weirdest way, it was, it was a positive for us looking back at the time. It was terrible. But I think we developed a lot of street cred with the entrepreneurial community because I was coming out of my startup office and meeting at a coffee bean and taking a meeting with another entrepreneur <laughs> lamenting about how hard this stuff is. Um, so I think it served us well long term for reputation and brand. But no, five and 15 were not planned. Five and 15 are what ended up coming our way based upon the maturity of the market. And quite honestly, um, the fund one exits that we ended up having hadn't, hadn't materialized yet. It's a great story. I had not known that was the path in the early years. And certainly the number of sacrifices I'm sure you all had to take was tremendous, but also gave you probably much more empathy toward the founder journey and being able to have lived through it and suffered through those, you know, tough fundraises and been caught in the crosswind of bad timing, but that you did eventually, you know, cross that chasm, become institutional with Fund 3, which was 5x larger than Fund 2. And some of that, of course, as you mentioned, was macro, Mark Suster coming, you know, there's more companies forming in LA, more interesting companies, probably some early progress in your portfolio. But were there things that you did from that fund two to fund three from a partnership standpoint, whether it's thinking about your own governance, your value add, your differentiation, 
that got you ready and for LPs to be comfortable? I think I would say the answer is no. We didn't change much because what we were trying to articulate was, look, Rick and I have been institutional VCs for 10 plus years together. There aren't a lot of small venture funds that have that kind of continuity from their GP base, right? Brett had been my next door neighbor and Uncle Brett to my kids. Like the relationships there, we were out touting, there's not a lot of team risk here. And more importantly, Rick and I have managed institutional funds and built very diversified portfolios that know how to generate returns in good and bad cycles. That still continues to be one of our differentiation points with LPs. What changed for us, I would say, it wasn't about leading deals, pricing deals. It wasn't about, we, we were taking board seats back at $5 million. It right. was more about um, reinvigorating an institutional mindset. And that's a really big thing. Like if I look back, fund one and two, we did extremely well with those funds, but they were mostly singles and doubles and a really high hit rate of decent outcomes. And what we had to flip the entire firm to was, okay, at 75 million, you have to take bigger swings. You have to have greater conviction, bigger ownership, and you have to back up the truck and put more money into the winners when you identify them, as opposed to letting the market identify the winners and come in and fund them at big, big valuations. So I would describe it as the biggest thing we've worked on as a firm is flipping from a reactive and relatively conservative framework to a proactive and um, quite aggressive framework in thinking about how our portfolios scale and where we can drive ownership and returns. You're touching on a number of important things, notably the concept of power law within venture. The fact that as fund sizes get bigger, the math becomes much more tricky in terms of you know, getting those outsize and outlier fund returns. As you have evolved your business and grown fund sizes, how has your mental model evolved as it relates to portfolio construction, both in terms of the number of companies and how you think about ownership, but perhaps also what do you underwrite to when you're first making an investment? I think a lot of it starts with just ownership targets. So getting to a place of great conviction about an entrepreneur, a business model, a go-to-market strategy, and trying to get 10 to 15 points of ownership for you know, somewhere between a million and two and a half million dollars. Obviously, the price of seeds has gone up. There's been lots of shifts across the entire venture ecosystem. But fundamentally, if you're putting 30 investments into a fund over a three-year period, you have to have deep ownership across a big subsection of those. And they have to be in categories that are pretty diverse as well. And, and that's why I, I now look at fund four and we talk as a group, we're like, that's our best body of work. That, that, is, that best captures the essence of LA's diversity of tech and sector, big swings. So things like Umber Lab, a synthetic aperture radar that's launching on a Falcon X in 30, 60 days, don't hold me to it, things get delayed. That's not something we would have ever contemplated in fund one or two. Taking hardware and launch risk in a category around geospatial imaging. Um, so we had to shift the mindset to say, okay, how do you put 30 investments 
with various expectations of potential outcome. Of course, you're wrong most of the time. But if you, if you look at a fund in that, with that lens, and that just lens wasn't there for us in one and two, the way it needed to be there for three and four, and now as we head into five. And that, that was the hardest part, and it took some time. And we worked really hard to kind of continue that lens about how we look at opportunities and how we build portfolios. Yeah, I'm curious to maybe look at another angle too. You, you know, investing in LA as a local funder of LA formed companies, in other geographies, people think about this too and say, well, the entry prices are typically lower than what you'd see on the coast. Is it also true that the exit prices, uh, you know, across the board are going to be less than what you would see from a Silicon Valley company? Now, a lot of that's been debunked, but as you were having some of these conversations with LPs, what were the type of questions? Because I, I could see on one hand saying, well, if you're going after these companies that really need to represent moonshots to return, you know, let's say three or four or five X of your fund, are there enough companies in LA? And does that mean that you have to be more systematic as it relates to discipline on things like ownership, knowing that some, there's a subsection of companies that, that are never really going to get to the size of potentially some of the companies that are in the, uh, the more tier, at least historically called tier one markets? I think that's the big question that LPs are pushing on. My answer has really been um, around that framework, what you said, debunking that myth. I think big companies can be built anywhere. I think COVID's proving that even more so. Certainly, Silicon Valley will always be the epicenter. But I think what LPs are starting to realize is, you know, you have, you guys track it, right? How many micro venture funds in Silicon Valley are now in market? claiming proprietary deal flow and access? How many institutional funds are pursuing a smaller amount of opportunities, but still plenty in Southern California? There's about four or five seed funds that have raised institutional capital. There's probably 10 seed funds total. I would rather be in an under-indexed in terms of dollars per institutional opportunity um, I'd much rather be in that market. And that's what I think LPs are starting to realize is that the importance of Southern California as an ecosystem is rising. And it's rising around themes like transportation and mobility, uh, space tech, healthcare tech, esports and gaming, content 2.0. These are things that we talk about. Those are $5 trillion verticals that LA has become sort of a thought leader around. And then you watch the talent migration coming from Silicon Valley in New York right now, and you can see that something special is happening here. So most of the LPs, I think, are becoming aware of that now more so and being like, yeah, I, I'd love to have some exposure in that ecosystem. Right? And then they just got to figure out which product they are most favorable towards. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you bring it up. I've had so many conversations over the last 10 years or eight years in particular for, with LPs that are looking at L.A. And in the past, it would be, hey, I've already invested in one LA fund. I'm, I don't need to get any more exposure. And I think people have realized there's much more opportunity than investing in a single fund in a geographic market like Los Angeles. But the question also then goes to future state. I agree with you that today people are seeing the value. And what we're seeing is company formations across sector. It's not where it was 10 years ago, where it was very media-centric. What does that mean for the local ecosystem of venture firms? And 
how do you think about evolving as there becomes more entrance, different types of capital? What are the things that firms like yourself are structurally thinking about putting in place to make sure you future-proof yourselves? I think normally common thinking would be, you know, a sector-focused fund is um, is going to be difficult because of sector, you know, dependence. But the guys at Bonfire have done a phenomenal job. And there's plenty. They're not investing only in LA, but there's plenty of opportunity for a fund like that to pursue. I mean, I think you'd see the overlap between the the more established seed funds in LA is very little. It's maybe one to two deals per fund total. Um, and that's just a testament to the amount of opportunities. I don't have the exact stats, but it's over 100 seed funded opportunities from traditional institutional venture funds per year in LA. And Crosscut's looking to do eight to 10 of them. So I think that's really unique and nobody understands that. Um, and then you talked about how, how do we compete over time? I mean, that's the question we wake up every day asking, right, is our job is to put the best product out into the market. Um, and it's one of the areas that I think where size matters. So, you know, with, with five funds raised and 300 million under management, I can hire someone like a Nick Kim to lead our platform strategies and build, finger quotes here, products that are repeatable and scalable to the portfolio. And I can also hire up uh, a next generation of talent that has domain expertise in enterprise SaaS or cloud uh, areas of LA that are getting more important, but that we don't necessarily have any specific domain expertise within the fund around. And so I have to keep putting that out there. I have to fine tune the product at Crosscut to make sure we are attracting the, the best entrepreneurs with the biggest ideas. Right. There's only eight to 10 per year that we're trying to find. How do we make sure they're the right eight to 10? I'm glad you brought up this notion of product and venture. And we clearly do live in a world where time is expensive, capital is cheap. And we do see firms of all sizes go and invest at seed, whether it's seed firms, whether it's Series A firms going downstream. And even some of the large, large firms are actively doing seed in local markets. I don't know if you see that too much in Los Angeles where you see Bay Area firms that are billion-dollar firms or billion-dollar funds coming and doing seed in LA. But if so, how do you defend against that? How do you think about your own model? And do you believe for those regional seed firms that there truly is an inherent advantage of being local and early? I think there is, or, or we would shut this thing down. <laughs> You know, there's, there's no reason to keep fighting if you don't feel like you have some edge or advantage. Um, for us, uh, seed stage investing is definitely getting more competitive and the Silicon Valley funds are more active. But what we're finding is that the entrepreneurs and those investors still appreciate having a crosscut at the table. I mean, you can't copy 60 years of collective experience and connectivity across Southern California by being a Silicon Valley firm. You, you don't know the, the networks. You don't know how to get to the right people. Um, there's value in that. Understanding the service providers that are most suited to help an entrepreneur. I mean, again, our job is to increase that entrepreneur's chances of success in going from seed to series A. And everything we do as a firm, everything that Nick has coined around platform as a product is about bringing repeatability and scalability to that idea. So that can be 
recruiting resources. That can be a seed to series A playbook. That can be customer introductions. That can be our founder health and wellness initiative. Any of those things need to be viewed both by Silicon Valley funds, as well as the entrepreneurs that we seek to back as a differentiator of our capital and a reason that we deserve to be on the cap table. The point that I always find interesting is just the evolution of firms over time. And now it's been 12 going on 13 years, starting off with that $6 million or $5 million vehicle that we talked about where you had to work part-time and it was small and then you kind of grew a little bit. And then now you're investing out of Fund 5 and you have much, much more of a platform approach. The market in LA has changed pretty fundamentally since then. And one of the questions that I always wonder about is, you know, firm culture, how do you evolve that? And in particular, it's often the case that firms have a tough time with staying power because they stay dogmatic to old ways of doing things without adapting. What struck me about you guys is you've evolved. And I think you in particular have gone through an evolutionary journey and I know mental wellness and health is a big part of what you look to imbue to founders. But would you mind maybe giving us your journey and why that's so important to you? It's probably the thing that I am that keeps me most engaged in what I do every single day. It's the relationship building with young entrepreneurs. And it's getting past the framework of like, don't worry, we're killing it. Um, and kind of getting to the real issues that entrepreneurs are facing, because this is a lonely path. I know it as well as anyone from my entrepreneurial efforts. But to answer your question, you know, I, I've told this pretty openly. And, and if I can contribute anything in, you know, in my career, if this is something that can help someone, I'm happy to do so. You know, but my, my story is basically born and raised here in LA. Father passed suddenly when I was 13 years old. And I think my coping mechanism at that time, because nobody really paid attention to like, oh, is that 13-year-old okay? I put my head down and I grinded. And uh, I, I think I set a goal in eighth grade after seeing my brother get a scholarship to Stanford. I said, I'm going to go play volleyball at Stanford on a scholarship. And four years later, uh, that's what I did. Um, and then I set the next objective and the next objective. And I woke up at 45 and went, oh shit, all I've done is put my head down and grind. And uh, it was actually something my family and my partnership identified. It was like, okay, you've had all this success. You have three healthy kids, a beautiful, loving wife, a successful firm. Why do you seem to be in this state of like agitation all the time? And, and it was Brett. He was like, as the face of this firm, you know, it's not okay for you to show up kind of grumpy. Um, and it really hit home. It was sort of like, yeah, why, why am I that way? And so my exploration was trying to understand the trauma of that tragedy at 13 and the impact of that in a 45-year-old man. And it took a lot of work. And it still does. I'm not done. Um, but to cut to the conclusion, you know, for me, it came around to understanding um, how to better connect with people about the things that matter in life and, uh, and having those relationships be less transactional and more about true friendship and true connection because all of our lives are imperfect 
we're all flawed and we all suffer from something. And so the more I could let that out and connect on that level, the more I enjoyed my job and the more I felt like I was having an impact in how I established these relationships with entrepreneurs. And the more I felt it was like maybe the one thing I could bring to this industry, because look, I'm never going to be a, a big social media guy. I'm never going to write thought leadership papers. You know, my shtick is being very approachable and building authentic relationships with entrepreneurs where I help them as best I can in any and all ways. And so it ended up manifesting in a, in a founder health and wellness initiative that, you know, we're still working on. I can't say it's perfected, but we think it's a real differentiator for Crosscut and a much needed thing across the entire venture ecosystem. Brian, thanks for sharing that. And I know a lot of listeners here can empathize with the constant battle of needing to be centered while trying to continue to take on all the responsibilities and being, you know, caught in the uh, continuous grind of our professional lives, especially as, you know, people find success. You know, I'm just curious from your perspective, as you've gone through this journey, presumably you were programmed to think a certain way for a very long time. Were there things you did to accelerate your path into this now new way of being more centered, being more mentally well? And what can, you know, folks like us learn from that? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be the journey of my lifetime. I don't think I'll ever get to a place where I say I'm finished. Uh, but it started, it started with uh, taking a break for the first time when we raised CrossCut 4. I did a 4,000-mile road trip in the family minivan, um, part of it with my family, part of it with a friend. And, uh, and I just kind of decompressed and unplugged and drove around the great western part of the U.S. up into Canada. Um, and then uh, our partnership with Evolution Coaching, uh, they invited me to a retreat called Deep. And that was probably the most impactful. There's a, a lot about it on the internet and I've written about it, but it was a, a four-day silent retreat, meditation retreat. And then using the framework of the hero's journey, kind of like break you down, face your demons and come back renewed. It's probably similar to the Hoffman Institute's. That one, you know, opened up my eyes to kind of how I experience the world and, and maybe, maybe why I can't see the, the beauty that surrounds me. And then I haven't stopped since then. Um, I've tried a little bit of everything along the way, just in terms of trying to stay in a mindset of less what's next and more like I'm okay just being here and I realize that none of this really matters at the end of the day, that, that was the big shift. Like when you're a type A hard charger, you're just so goal oriented, right? It's, it's all about the achievement. And it's very hard to make that flip to like, and, and by the way, there's been no, been, been no greater accelerant than COVID to force you into that framework of accepting what is and being comfortable with anything that comes your way. And I mean that from the standpoint of like, no deal success or failure should rattle you the way it used to rattle me. No particular event or fundraising meeting or lost deal should rattle me because, and I don't mean to be cynical, but let's be honest, do they really matter in the scheme of things? I think all that matters is being a good human being and connecting and loving 
wholeheartedly. If there's one thing I can say to my kids, that's it. It's not about where they go to school. It's not about what they achieve. Do they live their life open and loving wholeheartedly? And if they can accomplish that, that's a successful life. And it just took a really long time for me to figure that out. How do you think that's made you a better venture investor? I think I'm just more even keeled. It sounds cliche, but like my meditation practice and all the things I do just have me a little bit softer. I think if you ask my partnership, you talk to Maureen and Nick, you talk to Brett, you talk to Rick, I'm just a little easier to be around. I don't have to celebrate the highs too high and I don't celebrate the lows too low. I can just manage through. And I think it's just given greater confidence to kind of, you know, your original question was culture, right? I think what this has done for us is it's attracted um, a similar mindset of individuals that if you ask most of the people that have worked here, uh, they would say, you know, it wasn't for the compensation, it was for the culture and the the style of personalities that exist in the three co-founders, Brett, Rick, and Brian. And we're very unique and very different, but we're, at the end of the day, we're, we're good people and we think that matters most. And it permeates into the culture of who we want to hire here and how we want to think about, you know, eventually transitioning ourselves out of the fund and leaving it at the hands of people that will carry on with the same mission and the same energy and the same humility and the same grit that got us started back in 2008. It's such a really important and interesting thing to double click on is, do you create a firm for yourself or do you create one that survives you? And I think the integral component of that is creating a culture that stands for something, a product that stands for something. So I, I really appreciate, Brian, you going through that with us. I want to end with our final segment, which is our heat check round, which I ask you a series of questions, you know, rapid fire. And the first question I love asking is, what is the best piece of career advice you've ever received in your time in venture? Yeah, I've been consistent with this answer. Um, I think it's even up on, on my profile on CrossCut, but I think that there's a funnier story behind it than, than what's maybe out there. The quote, the advice I got, and it was from Teresa at now what's called Accrue. Um, she was at Excel at the time. And she said, hey, Brian, you got to let the game come to you. And I didn't really understand what she meant at the time, but I was uh, running Style Saint, running CrossCut, just you know, killing myself. And she, her point of view was just like, slow it down. Stop trying to force everything. That's your achievement mindset. And you just got to let the game come to you. And it was the best piece of advice. It came right when I needed it, right before I got sick um, in the middle of raising CrossCut 3. There were a bunch of things that forced me to listen to that advice. But the reason it's a funny story is I did not know that that quote is actually attributed to Phil Jackson. And not many people know this, but... Um, Phil's son, Charlie, is a very close friend of Brett and mine. He lives here in the Palisades with us. We've gotten to know Phil. They're investors in our fund. Um, all this time, I've been carrying this quote around with me for years, not knowing that it was attributed to, to Coach Phil. Um, and so I recently figured that out and just connected all the dots. Yeah, it's, it's great to hear. And there's so many analogies you can uh, convey between sports and venture. You mentioned this, not getting too high, high on the highs, not getting too low on the lows. But invariably, the longer you're in venture, the more likely you're going to have that one investment miss that you look back at, either individually or collectively as a team. Was there ever that 
anti-portfolio company that you missed on and you look back and kind of kick yourself and saying, we should have done it. And if so, what company would that be? And what did you learn from it? The one that comes to mind because it's top of mind in everyone's mind in LA is Honey. I can't say we've done a lot of after the fact analysis. We do that a lot here. We look at things we pass on and we, we say at the time were our reasons, the right reasons. Most people in LA uh, weren't terribly enthusiastic about a Chrome extension couponing play. What we missed, and it's actually reshaped a lot of what we're doing here at Crosscut, was taking um, earlier founder risk, right? Which Mucker has done a good job of. And I think, you know, it's led to us now conceptualizing what we're calling Crosscut Collabs for Crosscut 5. It's the idea that we could take founders like the Honey Founders and give them a 250K check and see if they can push it in a direction that is compelling and attractive to capital. And obviously they did, and we missed out on a big exit. You know, there's a lot of those in the portfolio, and we use them more as a a mechanism for looking at our processes and our decision-making and our risk tolerance and trying to figure out how we change our behavior. As, As I said, if you're not constantly iterating on what your, quote, product is as a venture capitalist, you're going to get left behind or you're stuck in old frameworks and we don't want to be. So we're constantly re-engineering the firm to think about the products that are going to allow us to compete at the highest level. That's a a great answer. And uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that as well. Having been an investor now for a long time, the other thing that usually comes up in my conversations with VCs is there's always that one investor out there that inspires them. And there could be a trait, it could be a characteristic, it could be anything. But is there an investor out there that you really look at and and inspires you that you've looked up to? Who is that? And and why have you picked that person? For us, it's not a single investor, it's a firm. And I'll explain why before I give you the answer. But when we first got to that stage where institutional capital was paying attention, they were coming to LA and they're like, why have we never heard of Crosscut? And our answer was, well, we don't have a soapbox. Um, We're full-time operators by day. We run this on nights and weekends. And it's not about us. It's about the entrepreneurs. So we've kept that as part of our core DNA all along. We've had many people say, you need to have more of a presence. You need to be active on social. You need to write thought leadership pieces. And ultimately, that's just not who Rick, Brett, and myself really are. Like We're in the trenches, guys. And so we've always kept that framework. So the, the firm that we always set as, the, as kind of the thing we want to emulate most is Benchmark. Um, and I say that because to me, the Benchmark brand rules the day more than any one individual GP at that firm. And they have done a phenomenal job of this framework of like team sports, best person for the opportunity equal ownership across the GPs, and entrepreneurs seek out benchmark almost more than any individual partner. And that's how I want CrossCut to be viewed. I want want entrepreneurs approaching us and the best person inside the firm for that opportunity shows up. The best person to lead diligence leads diligence. The best person to take the board seat takes the board seat. And the best person to help exit helps exit. This is a team sport. I obviously have a team sport background. 
I think that's the most important component of um, how we want to be viewed as a firm and how we want to grow and, and build our brand. Definitely not a, a bad firm to aspire toward. And the interesting thing is it's counter to what we're actually seeing right now, where personal brand in many instances actually trumps firm brand. And Benchmark through and through has never strayed away from that. So they've also been very disciplined on fund size, which is a big part of what we care about. Like we don't want to grow. We don't want to be a multi-billion dollar fund. We like raising a hundred million bucks every couple of years and just staying in the trenches, right? That's where we find our joy. I feel that even though you've been around 13 years, we're still in the uh, early days of really defining the uh, the long-term path of LA and certainly you know the uh, the long-term path of Crosscut which I think the story has yet to be fully written I'm excited to follow it Brian you and the team have always been great advocates and we've really enjoyed the relationship over the years and thanks for the support and thanks for being on here thanks for having me uh, you know you know my my man crush on FRB cannot be more thrilled with the support that you've shown us as a firm and so uh I appreciate you reaching out and inviting me on. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Brian and Crosscut Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 